have a seat. Man, I just, I love baptisms. I love hearing how God's moved in people's lives. Um, that way, when you come in here, you're not just listening to like what I have to say and you're like, well, of course he thinks that, right? That's, you can look and see that people's lives are actually being changed and uh, God is moving. Speaking of which, so uh, for a while, uh, past couple months, we've been, uh, like our average attendance here at the church has been like, like 500 people, which is really cool. Uh, so what we've been saying is that we're a church of just under 1,000. That's how you talk about it in the church world. Um, and we count pregnant people twice. So um, doesn't even matter if you are. If you look pregnant, we'll count you twice. Um, <laughs> but this past weekend, uh, Easter, we had just over 1,000 people on Easter. It was really cool. Really cool. Uh, and a lot of people deciding uh, to take a next step in their faith. So my assumption is that we're going to be using that baptismal uh, a lot more here real soon. And actually, I think it's gonna, there's going to be a bunch of teenagers. And that's really cool. That's really cool. So, yeah. God is up to something. All right, so we're starting a new series today. The way I want to introduce it is I want to talk about English class. So English class, remember English class? I know everybody always dunks on math class, like, I hated math. I hated English class, and here's why. I know, you're like, yeah, we can tell, shut up. Um, here's, here's why I hated English. Math, at least like with math, the rules like lead you toward reality, right? Like so two plus two equals four, and like you ask the question, well, why does two plus two equal four? Because it does. Because it is, it, is a, it is a descriptor of reality, right? So the rules led you to uh, an objective truth. And, you know, addition is the easier one, and then you get into more complicated things. But all of them lead you towards truth. In English, if you ask, like, the same question, like, why is this rule here? Um, the answer is because some old dusty guy in a professor's office somewhere decided, right? Isn't that, like, he decided that you can't, end a sentence in a preposition, and you ask why, and it's just because he's pretentious. I don't, he's just, a, you know, he, he wants us to all feel stupider because of his, you know, he's really smart and we're really dumb. Like, I don't even always know what a preposition is, so I don't, I don't understand the rules. And then, you know, you can't put a comma there, you have to put a semicolon. I don't know why. And if you do, I assume you have an IQ of 190 because I don't think there's any real reason for it. Um, so English class, the fact that it was subjective, and maybe that's a little my own thing, my own problem because I tend to be a little bit of a rebel and I don't like people telling me what I, appear to, what I perceive to be arbitrary rules. Um, math class resonated a little bit more. However, with that said, uh, we're starting a sermon series today about a word. Uh, the word is an adjective, and that's important to know about that word. Um, an adjective describes the quality or state of something. It can modify the meaning or change, enhance, expand, or expound on the meaning of something. So an adjective is a powerful type of word. It's a descriptor. It, it helps deepen and enrich the things you're talking about. Um, 
This particular one is found 200 times in the New Testament, over 200 times in the New Testament. I really, uh, I got fascinated by this word a couple of years ago, and I started looking at all the different places it shows up, and it shows up in, I want to say, surprising and really cool places. Uh, It's the word great, great. Uh, In the Greek, it's this word megas, megas, uh, and it means uh, big, numerous, abundant, powerful, uh, of great weight or importance, splendid, stately, grand, uh, and, and Again, you see this word describing things all throughout the New Testament in the coolest places. Now, it never stands alone, right? An adjective needs something to describe, so uh, every week we're going to look at this word describing something, uh, telling us enriching and and deepening our meaning of something. Uh, Today, great is going to describe the word faith. Great faith. Uh, We see these two words smushed together in our story today. So here's what I want to assume about you. I want to assume that when you hear the words great and faith pushed together, uh, that you on some level are like drawn to that. That if someone was going to describe your faith, you'd maybe want great to be one of the words that they would want to use for that. That you would say, yeah, that would be really cool if somebody was talking to me and said, oh, their faith is a great faith. Uh, So hopefully you're drawn into that. Hopefully you want to lean in a little bit and hear what all that means uh, because we're going to look at a story today where um, these these two words uh, are put on someone and I want to see what all goes into that. Now, the story is a surprising one. It is. I'm just going to just brace yourself. It's, it, it's surprising. Uh, we will start in Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, a Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. Okay, so kind of giving us the setting and the characters here. Um, Jesus is traveling along and he runs into a woman. The the descriptor we get about this woman is that she's a Gentile woman. If you don't know what Gentile means, uh, in the Bible that that just means somebody who's not Jewish. Okay, so you got the Jewish people and you got everybody else. So this woman is one of the everybody else's. Uh, So are we. Now, that's an important detail, maybe not to you. You're like, who cares? But, but in the story, it's a really, really, really important detail that she's not Jewish. Uh, Jesus did not interact with very many people who weren't Jewish. Um, and in the Bible, it's really hard for me to kind of give you the gist of just how important the people of Israel are in the, in the Bible. I mean, the entire Old Testament follows their, their story, and God talks about them uh, as the chosen people. Right? You're familiar with this, that the Israelites are the chosen people and God talks about working through them on the earth. They're supposed to be this conduit through which God moves on the earth. And, and by and large, in their entire history, they're terrible at it uh, until Jesus shows up. But really, really important, and I'm not just harping on a detail, it's really, really important in this story uh, that she's not one of them. Um, but she, here she is, and she's begging Jesus, right, pleading with him. Uh, for her daughter, who evidently has uh, a demon. She's being tormented. Now, we don't know how she knows that. We don't know what all goes into that. We don't know any of the details about that. But it sounds unpleasant, right? Sure, her daughter is in a, in a really bad place, and she is begging Jesus for help. 
Now, what comes next is super surprising. If, if you know stuff about Jesus, you probably have a guess of how you think he might respond to something like this. A desperate woman trying to help her daughter. But whatever your assumptions would be if you don't know the story, they're going to be wrong. So verse 23, here's what happens. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. What? Like, that's, that's so surprising. I mean, he ignored her. He didn't answer her. He was silent. It's so surprising that if you didn't know this story was in the Bible and somebody came up to you and said, is this story in the Bible based off of everything else you know about Jesus, you'd probably be like, no, somebody made that up. Right? That doesn't sound like the Jesus I know at all. He would never do that. But he did. Now, why? You know, the disciples and their whatever, you know, they kind of mock her, which makes it even worse, right? She's bothering us with all her begging. Dude, are you serious? Like, her daughter's in this horrible place. You guys going to mouth off like that. I kind of expect that out of them because they're idiots pretty much all the way through the Gospels, right? So that's like par for the course. But what is going on with Jesus here? On the surface, this doesn't make a ton of sense. Now, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to attempt to answer that, but I just want to warn you that the answer isn't going to be super satisfying. But there is some reasons. Um, but before we get to that, I want to look at this, though, for a minute. I think this is an important part in the story that you, we're, we kind of disassociate from this, but lean in a little bit here, because have you ever prayed for something and felt like Jesus gave you no reply, not even a word? Have you ever felt like that? Because like as much as we feel like this is a surprising thing, actually for us, I want to say that's pretty normal human experience, right? Even for the most grizzled prayer warriors in the room, we've all felt this, I'm pleading to God for something and I get not even a word back. I get no reply back. So this story is really important because I think we've all been here before. We've been where this woman is. Now, the details are a little bit different, but we know how this feels. And I guess, I don't know if this is comforting at all or not, but if you've ever prayed and heaven's just been silent, you're not alone in that? I, I, I guess, I, I hope that's at least some, some level of comforting because then at least you can know that it's not you, <laughs> Right? Like, you're not the only one that's experiencing this, that there are others who experience it as well. Now, here's what I want to ask you. If you're her in the story, and you go up, and you plead and beg for Jesus to do something for your daughter, and he literally ignores you, and then some of his followers start kind of making fun of you, what would you do? Like at this point in the story, I want to say I would be tempted to like drop my shoulders and be like, okay, and walk away. And I got to say, 
I feel like we do that in prayer sometimes too, right? You pray about something, you don't get an answer, or you don't get the answer that you wanted, and you drop your shoulders and walk away. This, for us, would be the end of the story. Verse 23, it would be, you know, the next verse would be, and she walked away, and it was it. And it was, that'd be really horrible. I probably wouldn't even make it in the Bible, right? <laughs> right? That would just be ignored. So, what's next? Now, next verse gives us a little bit more of some reasoning as to why Jesus responds this way. Again, answer's not going to be super satisfying, but here it is, verse 24. Then Jesus said to the woman, so now he's not ignoring her, he does talk to her. I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. How do you think that's going to play with a desperate mother? <laughs> huh. Huh. Like I said, I need to try and explain to you how important the people of Israel are, and I don't feel like I can do it justice. Now I feel this need to defend Jesus, because I'm worried you're all going to think poorly of him right now, and I want to be like, hold up a minute, though. Let me explain what's happening here. Not that I need to defend him, but um, this is a really important detail. Uh, he's saying that, hey, my mission is the people of Israel. That's why I'm here. Um, now, he's not saying hey, uh, when I came to heaven, I only brought a certain size bag of miracles that I carry around, and if I use one on you, I won't have enough for the people of Israel. He's not saying that. It's not like if he heals this woman's daughter, he's gonna get to Lazarus or something and be like, sorry, bud. <laughs> like, I, I ran out. Like, I gave her one I wasn't supposed to. Like, that's not what's happening here. What this is, it's not an amount thing. It's an order thing. And order, if you've ever read the Bible, you know that order is really, really important all throughout the Bible. So what Jesus is saying is that the, his mission is Jews are supposed to be first in this and then the Gentiles are brought in. So he, he came for Israel and then, and because and we're all sitting here, the Gentiles do get brought in, right? He does send his disciples into all the world to share the gospel, but the first step was supposed to be the Jewish people. So he's not really saying no, he's saying not yet. I've, I've got this mission first, that will be second. Like I said, yeah, okay, it's not super satisfying. But even that, even that, I feel like there's a lesson in that. What did I just say? I just pathetically tried to explain to you that there was a really big theological reason why this woman got to know. Something that was well beyond her ability to understand. Have you not been there in your life where maybe, maybe the reason God said no or not yet to you was a reason that was well beyond and well bigger than you. And that it had nothing... That, like the reason she's getting a no actually doesn't really have anything to do with her. It's, it's a grand cosmic thing that's happening that was set in motion before the time began and this grand story that God is writing and the people of Israel are supposed to get the gospel first and then it's supposed to go to the Gentiles. It's this huge, massive theological cosmic thing that's happening and that's why he's saying not yet. So I just want to point out that sometimes when you get a no or a silence from heaven or a not yet from heaven, that maybe, maybe it doesn't really have anything to do with you. 
Because I think sometimes we get so caught up in trying to figure out, did I ask wrong? Is I doing something wrong? Do I got to fix this? I got to, you know, turn the dial on the, on, the, on the safe lock. If I go three to the left, four to the right, five back, click, there it is, God's will. Now it's open. Like, what if it's not? What if God's like, hey, I'm just, I've got, I've got this huge big plan. And, and even if he tried to explain it, we wouldn't fully be able to get it. So again, for me, in a sideways kind of a way, this is comforting to me. Jesus just told her there's a really big reason that doesn't have anything to do with you that I'm going to say no to that right now. I think we get that a lot. The reason's bigger than you. All right, so now, again, I want to ask you. First, he ignored her. Disciples kind of made fun of her. Then he turned towards her and he said this. If you're her, what do you do? He told her now. He's, it's not really ambiguous before. You weren't sure. He was ignoring her. And now he turned to her and said, hey, I came for the lost sheep of Israel first. What would you do? I mean, Jesus just kind of told you no. Would you walk away? I would think you could even argue that if you say, I'm going to walk away at this point, that you're like, not obeying him, but like having like high respect for Jesus. Oh, okay. 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 And walk away. But again, it's not what's going to happen here. Verse 25. But she came and worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Okay. So the progression here is interesting. It implies that she wasn't super close to him when she first engaged him. Maybe she was a little bit of a ways away and she was hollering. And even when the disciples say, she won't leave us alone, like you kind of get the impression that they're walking down the road and she's like walking from a distance. And he really is, Jesus really is like, I've got, I've got the, how, the, there's the lost sheep of Israel, I gotta go do this. Like he set his face towards them. And then when the disciples are like, tell her to leave us alone, he turns to her and he says this. And it's like when he turned to her and spoke to her, even though it wasn't words that she wanted to hear, she was drawn in by that and she comes to him. And I feel like, you know, the disciples, Jesus posse, you know, walking around him, like she probably had to, she, she probably gave Peter a shoulder as she got in there and she had, to, she had to get in. And she comes up and it says that she worships him. There's a posture here where she lowers herself and she calls him Lord. She gives him a title and again pleads, help me. This is a gut-wrenching story. This is a mother who refuses to be told no. She's just, she's just passionate and she keeps coming and coming and coming. At this point, man, how do you say no? Well, brace yourself for the next verse. Are you braced? Brace yourself. Verse 26, Jesus responded up close here. It isn't right to take food from children and throw it to the dogs. Ow, owie, ouch. What? Did he just call her? <laughs> if, if Jesus had a PR person, can't you just imagine like somebody standing with a clipboard and like a little... 
earpiece in their ear. And as soon as they hear that, they're like throwing the clipboard down, like no more questions, no more questions, knocking cameras out of people's hands. Like you can't say, Jesus, did you just call a woman a dog? That's going to be on the front headlines of Israel news. You know, the dude called her a dog. Now, you know, we're, we're, we're in trouble now. Um, from our perspective, that looks really bad, right? Really bad. Um, so a couple things. One, again, I feel this need to like defend. And I guess what I'm trying to do is explain to you that like we're not, we don't see the story the same way they see the story. They live in a different culture and a different time than we do. So we're trying to take the way we would see it and paste it over top of them. And that's not really the right thing to do. So first of all, this woman, like we hear that as an insult, but she doesn't. She does not hear this as an insult at all, actually. Um, she accepts this illustration and I think we should pay attention to that. That means something, that in that culture, when he talked like that, it wasn't some demeaning thing. Um, she's not even phased by it. Second, and this one's a little more complicated. I hope you can follow me here. When you read it on the surface, doesn't it kind of sound like Jesus completely lacks empathy? I mean, completely. Like, you're the dog, and I'm going to feed the kids first. Ouch. But consider, consider. Um, remember what the woman's asking for. Why is the woman there? For a kid, right? Her mission is her child. That is her mission. So you, in the little illustration, you're focusing on the dog, but don't, hold on for a minute. What if Jesus is actually, what if instead of a lack of empathy, what if this is really, really highly empathetic because in the illustration, stop focusing on the dog. He's using children as his example with a woman who is there for her child. So he says, hey, I'm here for the children of Israel. And it's so important that, that what I'm doing for them, I, I have to do that first, and then I can get to everything else. So I think, and I know this is crazy, I think this is actually Jesus' attempt to use an illustration that would resonate with her. That, that because, and he knows that she's passionate about her child, and he knows that he's going to say, no, you're going to feed your kid before you feed your dog, right? That's what I'm doing. So it's actually an attempt, and I know this is crazy in our culture, we don't do this very well anymore. He's actually attempting to use something from her life to explain where he's coming from. He wants to make a connection with her here. So instead of being completely like a lack of empathy, this is actually really highly empathetic. He's trying to reach across the table and explain to her in terms that she would resonate with on an emotional level what he's doing. So she understands his actions. And what he's saying is, hey, as passionate as you are about your child, that's how passionate I am about my mission. Our mission's actually the same. So it's really actually kind of elevating her and, and, and showing her that your mission and my mission, they're parallel here. But again, the point of this was an order thing, right? Um, if your dog and your kid are both hungry, you feed your kid first, Right? never can tell these days, but I hope <laughs> that you would feed your child before you would feed your kid. Here's the other thing. And this is hard because when you read the Bible, like we all have an inner narrator, narrator right? You read and there's a voice that it's being read with. And there's some blanks that we don't have here that you, ha you will unintentionally or intentionally fill in with how, like your assumptions already. 
the tone of this story, at least for me growing up, whenever I heard this story, it was always like Jesus is a little like just angry already. I don't know why he's angry in the story, but that's the way it gets, pre- like that's the way it's, it's presented, that he's a little bit irritated. This woman's hollering at him. Eh, I'm here for Israel. Eh. I'm not going to take food from my kid and give it to dogs. Eh. And like, if you read it like that, he sure does seem like an angry, like what, again, what is this story doing in there? It doesn't fit with anything. Which for me, since it doesn't fit with anything, let's read it in a different tone of voice. Like what if that's not the way he was? What if his heart was breaking as he, the parent here is saying, I have to do this first. The kid, this is the mission that God gave me. It's breaking his heart to hear her yelling at him and he's already broken up by that. And he's like, hey, I'm, I, I, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel first. And it's not some like, eh, I was sent to the lost sheep. It's, it's, it's empathetic. And then when she runs up and she kneels before him, she, you know, she's got to be just a ball of tears. I don't think his eyes are dry either. Hey, I have to feed the kids first. Like it wasn't some angry, cold, indifferent thing. I think he is fully emotionally invested in this conversation. And again, he's trying to get her to see how he's thinking and how he's operating here. So don't let your inner narrator make this story seem way colder than it really is. All right, so I gotta ask you again. I gotta ask you again. Jesus just got done saying, hey, I gotta give food to the kids and not, the dogs don't get food right now. If Jesus said that to you, what would you do? Would that be the end of the Bible story? Would you be like, okay, and walk away? Because again, I gotta say, I feel like it'd be really tempting. And again, I think you could even make some kind of like theological argument that you probably should walk away. That how dare you come back again? Like he's told you no like three different times already. You could make the argument that you're supposed to. And again, in prayer, I think we kind of get sucked into that. I keep asking, he keeps saying no, maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe I need to stop praying for this. Maybe this is some kind of sign that he wants me to stop. But the next verse, man, she, she's, not, she's not thrown by this, man. She's just not thrown by this. Verse 27, that's true, Lord. But even the dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. (laughs) She doesn't even, she doesn't even blink. I'll be the dog in the story. My kids are messy eaters. (laughs) I'm going to get some food. She just rolls with it. I mean, she's just begging, begging, begging for anything, anything. I'll take, take, you know, I'm not demanding to be put at the table. I'll sit under it, just. I just, just don't kick me out. Don't push me away. Let me, let me pick up some of the scraps here. So she doesn't give up. 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 Now, again, try to imagine if, if you know the story, just try to imagine not knowing the end of the story. What does the momentum of the story seem to be telling you here? Doesn't it feel like this only ends one way? Doesn't it feel like Jesus is going to like pat her on the head and be like, I'm sorry, and walk away. Doesn't that feel like the direction of the story at this point? That's what's so important. Again, Christians, I think we read these, it's almost like our familiarity somehow steals the power away from some of these stories because you're supposed to be surprised by the next verse. It doesn't seem like the next verse is going to happen at all. It seems like that she's going to get a no and he's going to go after 
the lost sheep of Israel like he's supposed to. This story is supposed to surprise you. And it does, because i got to tell you, this next verse is absolutely mind-blowing, and I don't even think I'm going to be able to remotely do it justice, but I'm going to try. I'm going to read it to you in the King James Version, because it, it, it begs to be read in the King James Version. So keep in mind the scene here. She's on her knees in front of Jesus, crying out, saying, hey, I'll take, I'll take, I'll take the scraps. Here's what he says. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. <laughs> this, this, this verse is like pregnant with meaning. It is, this is a bigger verse than other verses. This verse is jam-packed. It glows a little bit. It vibrates a little bit. I hope you see the magnitude of this verse. Let me, let me take a couple steps back from the King James Version for a minute. Uh, the sentence, O woman, great is your faith. May it be unto you even as you will. <laughs> your will be done. Really? He just said that. So two spectacular things in this verse. He is, there is an apparent surprise in his voice that she won't go away. <laughs> and it's not an irritated one. It's a, <laughs> oh woman, your faith is great. He's a little taken back. He can't believe that she won't just go away. Great is your faith. The Greek word megas, great, and the Greek word pistis, faith. Great faith. So let's look at that for a minute. If you just look at this story and say, I mean, because by the way, this is the only interaction they've had, right? It's not like they know each other. So this is it. Jesus has this interaction with her that lasts a couple of minutes and he comes to this conclusion. Your faith is great. Great faith. So what led Jesus to say that? What are the ingredients that went into saying that your faith is great? You don't have a little faith. You don't have medium-sized faith. You have a great faith. What is it? So as I reflect on this, there is a, this woman has a crazy combination. And it's a really hard one to get. I think it's easy to have one or the other. But she has two things that are incredibly hard to hold on to at the same time. But she has them. I think that's really what happens here. So the first thing, and it's kind of obvious, um, is that she's stubborn, right? That's the first ingredient to great faith is stubbornness. It is. I know that's, that's weird. It's kind of counterintuitive. But she just won't go away, right? I mean, that's, this is the most obvious part in the story. She won't leave Jesus alone. She won't stop pleading. She won't stop asking. She won't stop knocking. She won't stop seeking. She's just going to keep coming and coming and coming. And in some way, this, this stubbornness like resonated with Jesus. Because again, their stories are parallel. She's there for her kids. He's there for his kids. She's stubborn about her mission. He's stubborn about his. And he's like, hey, I appreciate your determination. Her persistence, her stubbornness was a part of what made her faith great. And here's the thing. You need to get over yourself. Forgive me. You need to get over yourself because part of the reason you don't have this kind of faith um, is because you don't think you're like supposed to. And, and part of it has to do, let's be honest, parents, part of it has to do with the fact that when this is done to us, we react very differently than Jesus did. 
right? If our kids ask us something over and over and over again, we don't go, oh, child, <laughs> great is your faith. <laughs> May it be even unto you as thou wilt. I don't ever say that, right? Parents, you, if your kid keeps asking you something over and over and over again, you get annoyed. You don't like it. You want to train them not to do that, right? Maybe even we as parents were trained by our parents not to do that, right? Because it is annoying. When we say the sentence, ask me again, it's a threat, right? <laughs> find out, find out what's going to happen. But here, in our interactions with God, in some way it's not. That he's saying, no, keep asking me. And he's not threatening, he's inviting. Keep asking. What if part of the reason you, if you're honest, and you're sitting there going, I don't think the word great describes my faith. What if part of the reason that is is because you're too polite with God? I know that's weird to say. But, but, but maybe you ask him one time and go, he knows. He knows. And you have, and, and part of it is like you have a high view of God, so it's like under the umbrella of respect that you say, I asked him one time, I know he's infinite, and I know he, it's not like he forgot, right? It's not like he wrote it on a post-it note and like stuck it to the throne and it like fell down and got in between the cushions. Do you think his throne has cushions? I don't know. But like it's not, you know that didn't happen. So you, because of your high view of God, say I'm just gonna ask him one time and I'm gonna be respectful and wait in the corner until he says yes or no. But in this story, Jesus seems to really appreciate her not leaving him alone. What if you're too polite? What if you're too polite? Because there are some good reasons to be persistent in prayer. And the first one is obvious. I think it actually does something. I think Jesus actually wants us to be persistent and stubborn in our prayer life. Ask me why, I don't know. From a cosmic level, I don't understand why he wants you to, to, to grab a hold of his robe and keep pulling and saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I don't know why he says, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking. I don't know fully why. But it seems that this is one of the ways he wrote it into the DNA of, of the world to work, that we keep asking and somehow through our stubborn prayers, he moves. And then the second reason I think you should be persistent in your prayers has to do more, more to do with you. Maybe persistent prayer does something to you. Maybe as you pray about something again and again and again, you're not just saying the same words. Maybe there's a deepening of your thoughts about the thing that you're praying for. Maybe there's, it's causing you to converse with God about that thing more and more and more and more. And maybe it, well, it, it, it more well rounds your thoughts and your feelings about that thing. Maybe it gives you time to tease out some of your motives as why you're asking it. And it deepens your spiritual life through that. Stuff happens both in the heavenlies and stuff happens in your heart when you grab a hold of God and you say, I'm not letting go. I'm just gonna keep asking and asking and asking. And I wanna, I wanna really pound this home. Look at Luke 18, 1. This is a crazy sentence. This is Luke writing about the story that Jesus is about to give, and this is Luke's commentary. Luke says, one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. So Luke's like, this is why he told the story, so that you would keep praying, so that you wouldn't just ask one time and stop. He's going to tell these stories, and the story, the story's crazy. You probably know it if you're 
been a Christian for a while. It's this woman who has to go to a judge and he points out that the judge is not a Christian, not a God-fearing man, and the woman come and ask him for something and then she just keeps asking and asking and asking and asking and asking and asking until the judge goes, this woman's driving me crazy. I'm just gonna give her what she wants. And then Jesus at the end of that story says, pray like that. And then think about it. Just think about it with me for a minute. If you're familiar with the Gospels, think about all the little micro stories that really hold up a stubborn persistence in prayer. Uh, remember, remember blind Bartimaeus who's sitting by the side of the road? He's blind and he heard that Jesus was walking by and he starts screaming, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody around him says, shut up. Shut up, Bart. We don't want to hear it. And he just keeps getting louder and louder and louder and louder in desperate stubborn persistence. He just keeps saying Jesus' name until the point where Jesus says, get him, bring him here. Um, what about uh, the four friends? Remember the four friends who, who had a, a paralyzed, was their, their, their friend was paralyzed and they get to the house and the house is so crowded that they can't even get close to it. So instead of giving up, they go around to the back and bust a hole through the roof and lower their friend down into Jesus. There's some crazy stubbornness there. What about the woman with the issue of blood who was in a crowd and her thought was, if I could just get a hold of his robe, maybe something will happen. And she stubbornly is fighting through this crowd just to try and reach out and get her fingertips on the edge of Jesus' robe. A crazy amount of stubbornness. The story we just talked about last week, if you're here for Easter, Zacchaeus. There's another crowd in between him and Jesus, and he goes and he climbs a tree. He won't let that stop him. Peter, when he's on the boat and Jesus is walking on water, and Peter crazily says, if it's you, I want to come out there too. Like there's just this stubbornness about them that they won't, they just won't quit. They don't let these things that would have stopped us, if we're honest, they don't let them stop them. And think about that. All of those stories have something in common, not just a stubbornness. But aren't all those stories a little childlike? Aren't they all kind of childlike? Think about that. This woman will not leave Jesus alone. She won't leave him alone. Anybody, right? She's stuff in his face constantly, asking the same thing over and over again. It's very childlike. Bartimaeus, screaming out, son of David, have mercy. Just getting louder and louder until he got what he wanted, right? Um, the four friends who have this paralyzed friend, they're, I, we're, we will literally just tear the house up to get what we want. I mean, I get that you got to see there's a crazy pattern. Zacchaeus climbs a tree like a kid. Peter asks the silliest thing ever. If it's really you, I want to come out there. That's the way I want you to prove it. <laughs> They're all childlike. And there's this thread throughout the New Testament where Jesus very much holds up a childlike faith as being something he really likes. Because the cool part about all of those, because they're a little, they are, like, again, if, if we had like a church meeting, a church committee meeting, and we analyzed those requests without knowing the Bible stories, we would all shoot those ideas down. No, Peter, you can't ask to go walk on water. That's dumb. No, guys, you shouldn't tear a roof off a house to get to Jesus. No, Bartimaeus, you shouldn't keep yelling. Like, we would talk them all out of it. We would. But the common thing about this idea of being childlike is that they all have this incredibly elevated view of Jesus. Like, he's going to do something crazy, right? She really believes, she's getting in his face constantly asking, because she really believes that all he has to do is say it, and her daughter's going to be healed. Bartimaeus really believed that his blind eyes were going to see the four friends really believed that their friend was going to walk. The woman of the blood really believed it was going to stop. Zacchaeus really believed Jesus was going to do something. Peter 
flipped his leg over the side of that boat and believed it was going to hold him. Their childlikeness was a high view of God and a high view of believing that he was going to do something amazing. So that's the first ingredient. She has stubbornness. Now the hard one, the hard one to put together with that because stubbornness is, I, I want to say easy, but that maybe that's my personality. <laughs> she adds to her stubbornness humility. She's humble. Think about it. All throughout this story, this little micro story, she begs, she pleads, she never demands, right? She never asks to speak to a manager, right? Um, she doesn't flip out on any of the obstacles that get thrown in her way. She bows before Jesus. She calls him Lord. She accepts the role of dog in the story and she just says, I'll take the scraps. Just don't leave me. She's humble. She's humble. That is a really hard combination to hold. She has stubbornness and humility. And Christian, listen, we should be humble before God. He is the creator God of the universe. He wrote history. He, he wrote your DNA. He died on the cross in your place for your sins. There, is, there should be no entitlement with us. So which one do you lack? Do you lack stubbornness? Do you pray and when heaven seems silent, do you just give up? When you pray and you get a not yet, do you walk away? Is that you? Do you need a little more stubbornness? Do you need a little more childlike stubbornness in your faith? Or maybe you're on the opposite. Maybe you lack humility. Maybe you don't ask. Maybe you demand. Maybe you have a little bit of an entitled attitude with God, like he owes you something. And it makes no sense. You can't have that attitude with God. Every good thing is a gift from him. Every breath is mercy. A humble stubbornness. A humble stubbornness. Ugh. Talked about kids too much. Took too long. I gotta talk, I gotta talk about one last sentence. May it be even as you will. He told her that. Jesus said the sentence. May it be even as you will. Your will be done. Essentially, he said to, to her. The reason that if you're wondering, why does that sound familiar? That's because that's in the Lord's Prayer. We're supposed to pray, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your will be done, even on earth as it is in heaven. And here Jesus says that line to her. I don't think I can explain how awesome that is. I don't think I can do it. It's, it's like looking through a telescope at a star and saying, oh, that's really pretty, but not realizing that that star is like, as big and hot and powerful as it is, just looking through a telescope and saying, wow, that's what we're doing with this sentence because this sentence is insane. The God of the universe who is perfect knowledge and perfect power bent down to this woman and said, your will be done. That is crazy. Like, the best they could come up with, and this is pathetic, but this is the best they could come up with is like when Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel and like my two-year-old walks in and anytime someone's doing something that she's not doing, she wants to take it over. He has a paintbrush. Why don't I have a paintbrush? And it would be like Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel and being like, come here. Here you go. Here's a brush. Here's a wall. That's her favorite 
thing to paint on its wall and letting her go to town. But a a master at his craft allowing a two-year-old to scribble, that's essentially what it is when Jesus says, your will be done. But it's better than that. Like I said, I can't, that's not even really gonna do it justice because not only does Jesus allow our will somehow to be enveloped in his will, he puts his hand over our hand with that brush, but he doesn't just scribble. He incorporates it into the beauty of what he's doing and somehow it's even better because he allowed our silliness to be included in his perfection. I don't know how he does it. I just know that 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 paintbrush doesn't belong in my hand. So listen, Christian, anytime God says yes to a prayer, you should be blown away by that. You you should, if he hands that paintbrush to you that he paints the world with, and he says, okay, make your mark. You You should see how sacred and spectacular of a thing that it is the implications of an all-knowing, all-powerful, present God allowing our request to change the course of history, that somehow he folds our small, short-sighted, imperfect will into his infinite, sovereign, flawless will is a mystery. I love it. I love it. Worship team, why don't you guys come back up here? What if... What if we viewed prayer? I mean, you got a picture of that scene. He got, I think that woman bowed before Jesus. I think that last, when Jesus said, oh woman, great is your faith. Let it be even as you will. I think he got down on her level. I don't, I don't have any proof of that, but I think he kneeled down and he lifted her chin up because she was making the dirt wet with her tears. And I think he lifted her chin up and he said, dear woman, great is your faith. May it be even as you will. And then, you have to picture sitting at your table, your dog annoyingly whining under the table. And Jesus just knocked something off and said, there you go. Man, if that's not a perfect picture of him saying yes to prayers. So here's what I want you to do. They're going to sing a song. Um, maybe what you need to do, maybe you don't need to sing right now. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe there's been something that you've been put off. Maybe you stopped praying about something and today you need to start praying again. Or maybe there's something you haven't even dared pray about because it's just whatever. You haven't prayed it. Or maybe today's the day you bring it back. Take this time. Go before the king. Jesus, I thank you uh, for this insane honor that paintbrush that none of us have any business holding (laughs) our will folded into your will. I don't know how you do it, Lord. Thank you for that honor. I pray for some people right now, Lord, that they would be more stubborn in their prayers. They would be more stubborn in their faith. I pray for, for others, Lord, that they would be more humble. They would ask, that they would know that they don't deserve it pray for a humble stubbornness to our faith. Pray for a church full of people with great faith.